Well, good evening, and uh, it's always an honor to be able to preach on such an important day in the church calendar. My apologies if you were expecting Paul Hudson uh, tonight, as it said in the newsletter. Um, I haven't seen Paul for a while, but I think I'm a bit slimmer probably, and, uh, but not quite as much hair. But uh, I'd like to read to you from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, uh, reading the first 11 verses. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, on, in, on, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor and theologian who was killed by the Nazis in 1945, a very godly man, who wrote this. He said, a king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. A king who dies on a cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. During uh, this period of Lent, I decided that I was just going to read, when it came to reading the scriptures, I was just going to read the gospel accounts of Jesus' suffering and death. I read them many times, and I was praying very much that God would just somehow just make them live afresh within my own heart and life. But I have to say to you, to read about Jesus' passion at times is an uncomfortable read. When you're reading about someone that you love being so cruelly treated, it's an uncomfortable experience. And yet it is a vital experience in order for us to understand the depth of God's love for us and for us to understand and appreciate the cost of our salvation. Throughout Jesus' suffering and indeed his death, Jesus was purchasing something for us. He was purchasing our full complete and fully comprehensive salvation. But I believe also, and this is what I want to share tonight, I believe Jesus was modeling something for us throughout his sufferings and death. He was modeling how this kingdom, this rather strange kingdom operates. He was modeling attitudes that are at the very heart of the kingdom of God. 
He was modeling attitudes that uh, really in many ways are counter-cultural attitudes. They have little value in the world in which we live, but great value in God's eyes. Attitudes that are foreign to our old nature, but attitudes that are very much part of our new nature in Christ. They are attitudes that advance the kingdom of God. Jesus is modeling attitudes. And the Apostle Paul, in the passage that I read to you just a few moments ago, he says to us, look at Jesus, and your attitude should be the same of that of Christ Jesus. The Apostle Peter, who was writing to believers who were suffering for their faith in his first letter in chapter 2, he says this, he says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. The Apostle Peter says to believers who are facing the challenge of suffering for their faith, look back to Jesus. The Apostle Paul writing to believers that were getting a little bit disunited because of pride and self-interest, he says, look back and have a good look at Jesus. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 and verse 3 says, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. On this Good Friday evening, I want us to take another look at Jesus. I want us to gaze at Jesus during those hours of his passion. And I want us to see the attitudes that he is modeling for us. It's one thing to look, and indeed I found that as I was reading again the gospel accounts of his suffering, I just found myself saying, wow, what an incredible savior. What an incredible savior that he would endure so much for me. But friends, today we are not simply called to say wow and to stand back in awe and admiration, but actually the word of God calls us to emulate those attitudes that Jesus so beautifully modeled for us. And I trust that tonight, simply gazing at Jesus will do something within our hearts. I want to take you to an event that took place on the eve of Jesus' suffering. It's an event or, or, or something that took place that only John records for us in his gospel. The evening meal was being prepared and Jesus got up from the table. He took off his outer garments and wrapped a towel around his waist. Then he went over and he took a jug of water and he poured the water into a bowl. And then he did something that I believe it's near impossible for us to understand how shocking it was to those disciples. He stooped down and he washed their grimy, smelly feet and he dried them with a towel. Over the uh, years of uh, pastoral ministry, I had my feet washed on a number of occasions. I remember one time in one of the churches many, many years ago, somebody came up to me in the morning service and they said, you know, I just really feel, Peter, that God is telling me to wash your feet publicly in the service tonight. I, I have to be honest, forgive me, Lord, but I didn't relish the thought very much. And yet in the spur of the moment, I, I really didn't have a good reason to say no. So Sunday night came around and, uh, and this uh, dear lady washed my feet. 
But I have to say to you, it was, was a symbolic gesture because my feet were in pristine condition. My toenails were cut. I had put a clean pair of socks on. There really was no need practically to wash my feet. But that was not the case with these disciples. You know, they walked on those Middle Eastern dirt roads that not only had people walking on them, but plenty of animal traffic. They had open sandals And then they would come into a very warm room and they would eat together with their feet in reasonable proximity to somebody else. It was a very necessary job to be done, but it was one that was only performed by the lowest of the low. You see, in their culture, they knew nothing about equality. They knew very little about rights. And there was a very clear pecking order. And everybody knew their place in that pecking order And the person who would wash feet is the person at the very bottom of that pecking order. It would be a slave. In actual fact, in some writings, it says that it's among one of the jobs that no Hebrew slave should ever be required to perform because it was so lowly and so menial. And I can only imagine the absolute shock of those disciples when Jesus knelt down and began to wash their dirty feet, taking on the posture of a slave. Of course, there was symbolism here. We know that it foreshadowed so beautifully the atoning work of Jesus that would take place on the cross the following day when Jesus would wash away our sins. Hallelujah. He would cleanse us. And in many ways, it was fulfilling the thing that Jesus said so many times, the Son of Man has not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But this wasn't merely a symbolic act. This was not merely an object lesson in Christian servanthood. This was a deeply loving act from Jesus. In John 13, where he records this, he says in verse 1, that having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus now showed them the full extent of his love. This was not just an object lesson. This was a a demonstration of deep loving service to the men that had traveled with him over the previous three years. But John also says in verse 3 that Jesus kind of knew exactly who he was and what was happening. He says that Jesus knew he had come from the Father, he was returning to the Father, and that the Father had put all things under his power. This was not the result of some identity crisis of Jesus. This was not the result of some feeling of inferiority. Jesus knew who he was, King of kings and Lord of lords. He was secure in the Father's love. There was nothing to prove to Jesus, but out of that wonderful security, he stooped so low to serve in this loving way. I don't know what was going on in the disciples' minds, but I find it interesting that it's John who records this event. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't mention this. They mention other things about that evening. But it's John who records this event. And what we know about John is that as a young man, when he first started following Jesus, he was a very ambitious young man. He was a man who wanted prominence. He was a man who wanted to take the center stage. He and his brother James approached Jesus one day and said, could we have the top seats in the kingdom? 
They even brought their mother along for a bit of moral support. That's desperate, isn't it? And uh, the other disciples were absolutely livid. Not because they were very humble, but because they, they had their eyes on those top seats. You see, we, we kind of see in John a man who wants greatness. He wants prominence. And I believe this had such an impact on him. We find that, and Luke records for us, that even at this uh, evening meal, the disciples were arguing, and it seemed to be a recurring argument, about which of them was the greatest. On the eve of Jesus' suffering and death, they're arguing which one of us is the best. You know, these were the guys who were going to lead the church. If you feel, my desire tonight is not to bring any sense of condemnation, but I, I think there's great encouragement here. These guys are presented warts and all. On the eve of Jesus' suffering and death, after three years listening to the teaching of Jesus, watching Jesus, they're still arguing about which of us is the greatest. Now that reoccurred a number of times. You know, Jesus would be walking along the road and think, what are they arguing about? And then he would say, what is it you're debating? And sheepishly, I can imagine, oh, we're we're just trying to work out who's the greatest. You know, which of us is the most important? And Jesus, through many different avenues, had to show them you're missing what the kingdom of God is all about. Jesus said this in Luke 22 in response to their arguments about who was the greatest. He says, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You know, every time they had this debate, it exposed the idea that they knew so little about what the kingdom of God was about, so little about this rather strange kingdom, as Bonhoeffer put it. You see, it seemed that they were those who wanted a Messiah that would serve their purposes. And Jesus went on to tell them, look, one day you will sit on thrones. One day you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But I want to tell you that the way up is the way down. You know, leadership is serving. It's almost as if they modeled their ideas of leadership maybe on the prevailing culture, upon the business world, maybe upon the religious institutions of their day. But to see Jesus kneeling at their feet, washing their grimy feet, was introducing them to a brand new model of leadership. I say this with all sincerity. I am grateful, and I'm sure you are, that we are part of a church where our leaders have modeled their leadership on Jesus And not upon the business world, not upon the institutions of this world. I'm grateful today, and I know the leaders well, and I value them so much. And I realize today they have modeled their leadership. They're they're, they're not celebrity-style leaders. They're leaders who are following Jesus and modeling their leadership upon the service of Jesus. You know, friends, today our responsibility and our job is to make their work a joy and not a burden. And I trust and pray that we appreciate. I've been around churches for many, many years, and I really do appreciate that servant leadership 
within this fellowship. And to see Jesus there upon his knees was introducing them to a brand new model of leadership. But friends, today this is at the heart of the kingdom of God. This is an attitude that Jesus, he says, don't just look with admiration. He goes on to say, I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I guess it was a very uncomfortable experience to have Jesus wash their feet. The few occasions it's happened to me, it's a very humbling experience to have somebody wash my feet. Also a bit scary because I have ticklish feet, but uh, it's, uh, it's a humbling experience. And I can imagine as they sat there at that table watching Jesus stoop so low, it must have exposed their own pride, their own self-interest, their own ambition. Not one of them was willing to do that. It would make them look weak, maybe, in the eyes of the others. But their Lord, their Master, their Messiah, their Rabbi had stooped so low. Friends, Jesus is modeling for us the attitude of servanthood. And moving on quickly, we come to the passage that I read just a moment or two ago. Philippians chapter 2. And Jesus, uh, Paul writes this, he says, Jesus humbled himself. And became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Paul lifts up Jesus as the supreme example of humility. The church at Philippi, as far as we can tell, was a a relatively healthy church. Compared maybe to Corinth and some of the other churches. And yet, even in the healthiest churches, we have to guard our unity. And Paul realized that there was some pride, some self-interest, some vain conceit. And instead of giving them a telling off and wrapping them over the knuckles and saying, come on, come on, you're threatening the unity of the church. What Paul does, he says, let's have a long, hard look at Jesus. That's the answer. He said, let's gaze upon Jesus. And quoting from what we believe to be maybe an early Christian hymn about the humility of Jesus He reminded them of the supreme example of humility. Friends, today, humility facilitates unity. Pride destroys unity. And unity isn't just a nice idea so that we can hold hands and sing kumbaya or bind us together and, oh, we feel all nice and warm and cozy. Actually, it's essential if the church is to be what God has called us to be. It's not a a luxury It's not about how warm and fuzzy I feel, although that's quite nice, isn't it? It's actually about our effectiveness in this world to be light and salt to a lost world. And so Paul quotes from this hymn. And it's an amazing hymn about the humility of Christ. He speaks about the Prince of Glory. Maybe Paul even wrote this, we don't know. But he speaks about the Prince of Glory who was and is and will ever be equal to the Father. And yet he did not cling to his rights and his position, but he descended the stairs of humility right down to where we were. Entering this world and becoming a tiny embryo in the womb of Mary, being born into poverty and taking on the very nature of a servant, And becoming obedient to death, even death 
on a cross. And praise God, it doesn't stop there. God exalted him. Hallelujah. But Paul says, what humility. You know, as I've read through those gospel accounts over the last uh, month or so, I've been so struck by what Jesus was willing to endure at the hands of sinful men. It's very evident when you read the scriptures that Jesus, right from the beginning, was in absolute control. You know, he knew what was going to happen to him. The disciples didn't want to hear it, but Jesus knew. And there in the Garden of Gethsemane, in that brief moment of of boldness, when Peter got his sword out and sliced off the uh, high priest's servant's ear, I don't think he was aiming for the ear, to be honest. I think he was hoping to slice off a bit more than that. But uh, he was a fisherman, not a swordsman. And uh, Jesus said, he said, Do you not realize that I could call on my father? And in a moment, he would dispatch 12 legions of angels. He would dispatch 72,000 angels. (laughs) You know, there is authority there. I could stop this at any moment. And later he stood before Pilate and Pilate was there in all his pomp and ceremony. And Jesus must have looked a pitiful sight after a whole night without sleep, after beatings and all that he had gone through. And Pilate boasted, he says, don't you realize I have the authority here? One word from me, you will be crucified, but another word from me and you'll be released. And Jesus said, you would have no authority unless it was given to you. You see, Jesus was in absolute control. All the authority of heaven was at his disposal. And yet, for our sakes, he was willing to go through so much. For our sakes, he accepted the betrayal, the denials, the desertion, the injustice, the false accusations, the misunderstanding, the mockery, the insults, the sneering. The barrage of abuse, the derision, the contempt, the spitting, the repeated beatings, the flogging, and ultimately the shameful, torturous, and excruciating death of crucifixion. Peter writes this in 1 Peter 2:23. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. For our sake, Jesus did not insist upon his rights. He did not insist upon the respect and the honor he so rightly deserves, but made himself nothing. I don't know about you, but gazing upon Jesus during his passion has a way of exposing our pride, our self-centeredness, and our feelings of entitlement. And me personally, and you apply it to your own life. But for me, as I gaze upon Jesus Christ and all that he went through, I'm ashamed of my fragile ego. How I take myself too seriously. My insistence upon my rights, even at the expense of Christ's honor. How easily offended I can be. How a little bit of disrespect or a faint sneer upon someone's face angers me how defensive I can be and how quick I want to retaliate and maybe you're very different to me but there is something about that beautiful attitude of humility that exposes something 
in my heart. I love what Tim Keller says about humility in relationship to the gospel. He said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think of myself, I do not think more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. Hallelujah. You know, if in your understanding of the gospel or my understanding of the gospel, there is even a little gap for pride. We have not understood the gospel. If in your understanding of your salvation, there is even the slightest little bit of gap where pride can come, we've not understood it. Because God has so designed our salvation as to remove the possibility of any pride, all the glory goes to him. Hallelujah. It's all by grace and not by works so that no one can boast. And I praise God for that today. I think of the beautiful words of that wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Jesus modeled for us beautiful humility. And finally, and be brief with this, Going back to that upper room, when Jesus and his disciples left that upper room, they made their way across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that it appears that Jesus frequented so often with his disciples. And this is what Mark records that happened. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground. I think the RSV says he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. You know, we have on display for us here the raw humanity of Jesus. Although fully God, he was fully man. And here we have his humanity so on display. He is not a pretend human being going through the motions. He is not gliding through these events, just play acting. He is a real man facing the most intense suffering that any man has ever faced. And Jesus seemed to be in the grip of a shuddering horror as he contemplated the dreadful prospect of what lay before him. This was no mere rhetorical prayer. This was a heart cry to God. You see, so often the 
artist's impression of this event shows Jesus kneeling serenely at a boulder, just gazing up to heaven. But actually, in the disciples' eyes, Jesus was having a meltdown. In their eyes, this was quite shocking. They had never seen Jesus like this. And yet Jesus was experiencing an incredible temptation to avoid the cross. And here he is throwing himself on the ground, crying out. The writer to the Hebrews in uh, Hebrews 5 and verse 7, looking back on this, says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard. He wasn't saved from death, but he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus prayed the costliest prayer that has ever been prayed in the history of this world. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Aren't you glad tonight that Jesus prayed that? Aren't you glad that he resisted the temptation so much hung in the balance? But this was a real battle. Jesus walked out of the Garden of Gethsemane resolutely set upon fulfilling the Father's will. Sadly, the sleeping disciples left the garden to desert and to deny Jesus. But Jesus grappled with that temptation. And what a cost. But what fruit today we see from him fulfilling the Father's will. And let me just emphasize here, the Father was not imposing his will on Jesus. This was a partnership between Father and Son to bring about our salvation. You know, the will of God is the best life that we can ever live. To wholeheartedly embrace God's will is to embrace life to the full. Paul writes in Romans 12 and verse 2, describing the will of God, he says it's his good pleasing and perfect will you want a life of no regrets embrace the will of god but there is cost and the christian uh, history of the christian church highlights many who have paid a big price to say nevertheless father not my will but your will be done i think of men like ct stud who gave up his professional cricketing career to serve as a missionary Think of the Puritan John Owen that gave up a huge inheritance in order to follow his evangelical faith. And I think of the majority of the apostles, along with thousands upon thousands upon thousands through the centuries that gave up their very lives in martyrdom in order to say, not my will, but your will be done. I wonder today, where is the area of conflict in your life? between God's will and your will. Where is the area of struggle? You see, sometimes it was Mark Twain, I think, who said, it's not the bits of the Bible I don't understand that worry me, it's the bits of the Bible I do understand. You see, sometimes we're we're thinking it's so mysterious, the will of God. Well, actually, a huge amount of the will of God is pretty straightforward. It's there in the praying writing of Scripture. But where is the area tonight that maybe you are battling in Because you know the will of God, but somehow there is a conflict. I want you to hear the cry of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Through the agony, through the the dreadful sense of what lay before him, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. 
I have to say that whatever conflict you find in your life or I find in my life is nothing compared to what Jesus had to go through. But maybe immediately you think of the really big things in life. But you know, every single day of our lives, we are making a multitude of decisions that are either saying to God, your will be done or my will be done. They're so simple, so small. The decision to forgive. The decision to go the extra mile. The decision maybe to flick off the TV and open up the scriptures. The decision to choose to resist temptation. Jesus modeled for us so beautifully reverent submission to the Father. And so we see that attitude of humility modeled for us. We see that attitude of servanthood modeled for us. And we see that attitude of submission modeled for us. And I don't know about you, but when I gaze upon Jesus, it does have the, the effect of showing me how far away I am so often from those attitudes. My desire this evening is is not to condemn you, not to make you feel worse when you go out than when you came in. But you see, the reality is gazing on Jesus will do that. It's healthy for us to realize some of the issues within our own hearts, maybe the stinking pride, maybe the way that we take ourselves too seriously. Maybe it's the fragile ego or the way that we're so easily offended or this insistence upon my rights, even at the expense of Christ's honor. And gazing upon Jesus kind of exposes that. But I want to encourage you by reminding you of the guys who watched Jesus demonstrate these attitudes firsthand, those early disciples. And they are presented in the word of God, warts and all. On the last supper, they're arguing, they're fighting as to who is the greatest. There is this ambition within their hearts They don't seem like super saints to me. A little later, fear is going to grip their hearts. They're going to deny and desert the Lord. And yet we read on through the New Testament and we see that these men gave their lives in humble and fruitful service for Jesus. Something happened. And friends, we do not just have the perfect example to follow in Jesus The Bible tells us that if you're a Christian today, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And the Holy Spirit took up residence when you got saved. And the Holy Spirit is not living within you just to comfort you now and again. He is living in you with an agenda. And his overriding agenda is to change you from the inside out and to change me into the likeness of Jesus. Isn't that encouraging? We're not just called to look at Jesus and through our sweat and our toil try and get that humble attitude. (laughs) I'm going to try and be really humble. I'm going to try and be less self-interested. No, we, we need to gaze at Jesus and allow the Holy Spirit by his power and by his influence to reshape us on the inside. And not by sweat or by toil, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, those attitudes become real within our hearts and lives. And can I say again, these are attitudes that are at the very heart of this rather strange kingdom that Jesus has established. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, this evening we thank you so much for Jesus. And we choose tonight, we've read of Jesus, and I know that 
Many throughout this time have focused so much upon his sufferings and death. But we look again with incredible awe at who Jesus is and what he was willing to do for us, what he was willing to endure. And Jesus, we do not want to stop by just admiring you and saying, wow, Jesus, you did such an incredible job. Help us to see what you are modeling for us. And we ask in the name of Jesus that we would have increasingly the same attitude of servanthood. Oh, demolish our pride, Lord. Demolish our fragile egos so that we might be like Jesus. Help us understand the gospel so that all pride will go out of the window. And help us, Lord, to walk in humility so that we might attract your favor and your blessing. For we know that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And Father, we pray, particularly for those tonight who maybe in a very specific sense are finding within their lives a conflict between your will and their will. Give them the grace to say, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. God bless you.